Hello, Church of the Beloved. My name is Abe. I am the pastor for our Wicker Park campus. I'm so glad that you're joining us today online. Um, if this is your first time with us, maybe you didn't uh, catch last week's message. Alex mentioned it today, but I want to give you a heads up. Now, over the past six months, my wife and I, we've been doing our best to care for uh, our sisters and brothers at our Wicker Park campus by either walking to their homes because we don't own a car or having them meet us at our home on the first Sunday of each month to celebrate communion together. Today, we're doing it differently. Today, we're getting all three campuses, our entire church together to celebrate communion virtually. Um, So I'm going to ask you to take a moment to be sure that you have the communion elements available to you because we're going to do that afterwards. We're going to have the bread that represents Christ's body and a cup of juice or wine that represents Christ's blood so that we can join together in communion. I can't wait for it. But I want to start us off right now, as is my habit with prayer, because I want to take this time, this moment, to consecrate everything to God because this is a time for God to speak through me, not for my words, for me to decrease so that God might increase. So I'm going to ask you, would you join with me in prayer? Precious Father in heaven, almighty And sovereign King of kings, I beg you now, pour out your wisdom and your mercy on everyone listening, including myself. May the words that come out of my mouth be yours alone. May you be glorified because of me and not in spite of me. In the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So I want to thank Matt for reading today's scripture passage. Um, The main point of today's message is going to come from Exodus chapter 16, but I'd like to start us off, set some context by looking at the previous chapter. Now, in the story leading up to what was read today, it presents in Exodus the time between right after the Israelites had crossed the Red Sea and right before they start their journey to Mount Sinai. Now, in the English Standard Version of the Bible that was read, the title that it gives to this song that's shared in the start of Exodus chapter 15 is the Song of Moses. Other translations, they call it the Song of Miriam. There's also the Song of Miriam and Moses. But the traditional Jewish translation um, gives the song this title. It's the song that's in verses 1 to 21. It's the Song at the Sea. Because it was sung by the Israelites right after they they crossed uh, the Red Sea and it's on the shoreline. And based on Jewish tradition, uh, and as you read through this passage, this song, It reads like a song that was sung by a multitude, by the nation of Israel, not just two folks. And so they're singing this song. It's a song of worship after this miraculous work that God had done for their sake. God had just saved, proven that he's going to save them and, and save them from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the response of the children of Israel, I think, is best summarized in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, where it says this, Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And you see, the Israelites finally feared not. They finally stood firm. They watched God. They shut up, and then they obeyed. So as a result, they are saved from what they thought originally was their inevitable destruction at the hands of Pharaoh, at the hands of God's enemy. So their natural reaction to their salvation was to worship God, to sing and to dance together as a nation. And that's, as I was preparing for this, that's why I asked uh, a group of my fellow sisters and brothers from Worker Park to gather together 
to worship. Uh, and, and ultimately share it with you today as what you saw earlier and hopefully joined in with. Because you see, here at the Church of the Beloved, we're seeing the hand of God impact our little church. And so as we fear not, as, as we uh, stand firm and watch God work in us and work through our church, as we seek to obey his will for our church, our only and our best reaction is to sing worship to our sovereign king. But going back to the story, the Israelites, they start walking. Uh, this is what's going on. It's not going to be an easy journey. It's going to be 40 years ultimately, and we'll see that as we go through Exodus. And from Exodus chapter 15, verse 22 through 16, verse 3, you see that the author, Moses, in this book, the Exodus, and what we call the gospel according to Exodus, the author is describing the bitterness of the people as they're traveling through the wilderness. Because at first they run out of water and they get thirsty. Then they start running out of food and they start getting hangry. And I'll tell you, reading through this story, one of the images that started to conjure up in my head was the image of a long road trip, you know, where you have somebody in the car that's constantly asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Actually, when I was writing that down, you know, there, everything that's going on today, the thought of that might not be such a bad thing, the idea of getting in a car with people, going somewhere. That would be nice. Anyway, let's get back to this. God, in his infinite patience, and his mercy and his grace does not turn around and say, I'm going to turn this car around if you don't be quiet. And he doesn't shake his mighty head in annoyance um, at how it seems like his chosen people have forgotten they are his chosen people, that, that they've been singled out by God for his glory. He reminds them of this. He reminds them that he's got this. In verse 4 and 5 of chapter 16, it says this, Then... The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whatever, whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So I want to take a second and sit on this phrase here, that I may test them. Because Exodus chapter 15, verse 25, it uses the same word. If you look at the second half of Exodus uh, 15, you'll see that the Israelites, you know, they're, they're thirsty because they ran out of water. And they come across this water source. But unfortunately, it's undrinkable. So God commands Moses, hey, take that log and throw it in the water, and the water becomes sweet to drink. And in the second half of verse 25, this is what's written. It says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. So I, I want to point out a pattern here. <clears throat> something that becomes quite evident in this book in Exodus. So God will provide a miracle, then God provides a lesson. You look back at the signs or the plagues against Pharaoh, the lesson there is so that everyone might know God's power. God provides a miracle, then God provides a lesson. When God saves the Israelites from the Egyptians, the lesson there is that they might know that God will fight for them. God provides a miracle, and then God provides a lesson. When God sent Moses to save the Israelites, the lesson is a reminder to the Israelites that they will know that God keeps his promises. God provides a miracle, and God provides a lesson. And so with these two miracles that you're going to point out here, you'll see the same pattern. You'll see the miracle of drinkable water 
the miracle of manna from heaven, God provides a miracle, then God provides a lesson. But Pastor Abe, how can you say that God's providing a lesson, one might ask? Because the word here says God tested them. It doesn't sound like a lesson. This is where we need to look at the original Hebrew text. Okay? In the original Hebrew, the word used for test or testing is not intended to, to describe just a pass-fail kind of scenario or thing. God's not intending to say, uh, I'm going to see if you're worthy of me by your obedience to my command and my statutes. See, God had already said, he continues to say this, I deem you worthy by my grace because I've already done the work for you. And I mentioned this last week, and I'll repeat it. The redemption of Israel, God keeping his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was not because of the Israelites' quality of faith. It was because of the object of their faith. It was because of God. So this word test is intended to describe something a little bit different. It's, it is the creation of opportunities to, to gain experience and wisdom and knowledge. It's to train up the Israelites so that as the chosen people of God, they might be set apart. God provides a miracle, and then God provides a lesson. And the lesson here, God's saying, I've set all this up for you because I want you to be different from the world. I want you to be set apart as a holy nation that worships only me. God's saying, I want to make you such an anomaly to the world at large that no one can mistake you as anyone but a beloved child of mine, a beloved child of God. God provides a miracle, then God provides a lesson. Now, this is all uh, the context, the prologue for today. It's just a setup for today's passage. And in going to today's passage, I only have one point that I want to share today. It's a simple one. And this could be from the first half of verse 23. Let me read that to you. It says here in verse 23, He said to them, Moses said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. My one point is very simple. A holy Sabbath is not a suggestion. A solemn rest is a command from God. Now, I'm going to be honest. Um, as I was reading through this part of Exodus, preparing for today's message, I, I actually had a hard time. I mentioned earlier, and Alex did too, today, in remembrance of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ for us, we're going to participate in communion together, which I'm so happy about. The easier sermon today would probably have been to, to look at the manna and tie it to communion. For example... Did you know that in Hebrew, manna is translated to what is it? So when the Israelites first saw this gift that God provided them from the heavens, they went out and asked, what is it? They went out and asked, manna. And so that name stuck. And in the same way, when Jesus came to be the bread of life broken for you and me, those around him, including his disciples, they did not get it. They were like, what is this? What are you doing? And they kept asking questions of Jesus. So the easier sermon would have been to tie today's passage to our communion. But that's not what God was emphasizing to me as I was preparing for today. And here's the thing. Jesus identifies himself as not only the new and perfect manna from heaven, 
he also says in Matthew 12, in Mark 2, and in Luke 6 that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus came to earth to reclaim the Sabbath back from what it had become. So as I was preparing for today, I realized what God was leading me to speak today was the uncomfortable thing instead of the easy or the obvious one. And you might be thinking, you know, really? Is it, is it that uncomfortable to say that, that we're called to keep the Sabbath holy? Is it really that awkward to say that we're supposed to have a solemn rest? I mean, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. And, and I could very well be wrong. It might not be that big a deal. But as I started to unpack what this means, there were points where I started feeling that this is going to get a little awkward. Here's the first awkward thing. I'll say it again. Keeping the Sabbath holy is not a request. It's an order. Because it says, this is what the Lord has commanded. We live in a world where really everything and anything goes, where, where we should allow people to do what makes them comfortable, not require anything of anyone. Now, I'm sure there's a conversation all of you have had in the last six months about the spread of the coronavirus. And one of the reasons that most people will tout as a probable cause for the spread of this virus, especially in the U.S., is our need for freedom. Now, it is my absolute God-given right to decide whether or not I'm going to wear a mask or whether I'm going to shelter in pace or I'm going to let the mask fall beneath my nose. It's not just an American thing. You see that in Western culture. You see it in Europe as well. And with this type of mindset, the idea that I'm going to come to you now and tell you that God commands you to keep the Sabbath holy, that this is not a choice, it's a little awkward. Some of you may not know this, um, but I am what my friend Pastor Dave Johnson from Albany Park likes to call a co-vocational pastor. In other words, I have another full-time job. I work in the software industry. Uh, that helps support me in this full-time unpaid job as a pastor. Now, for me personally, one of the hardest things for me to do is require uh, or command or demand from my staff, you know, that I need to have a deliverable done by a certain time. You know, I'm oftentimes really apologetic. I, I try to show as much grace as possible, and I'll say something like, like well, you know, I really need to have that completed by code freeze within the next hour. Making demands for me personally, it's, it's just a little uncomfortable. For some of you, it may not be. You might be okay making demands of those around you. But I'll ask you, even if that is true for you, how comfortable are you with receiving demands, receiving commands from other people? So this first awkward point, at least for me, when you start unpacking this idea of a holy Sabbath, is that it is not a suggestion. It is a requirement. It is a command from God. What does that really mean, though? I, I mean, I, c I can spend 20 minutes listening to a sermon online, and, and that's good enough for keeping the Sabbath, right? And this is what leads us to my second potentially awkward point. A solemn rest is not the same thing as taking a vacation or a nap or sitting in front of the TV and binge-watching on Hulu or Disney Plus or Netflix. I want to explain what I mean by turning back to the first mention of the Holy Sabbath and solemn rest. It's from Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. It says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. <coughs> now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go too deep into the weeds on this. I'm just, in short, many theologians look at the creation uh, of the entire cosmos as the creation of God's temple. The, the entirety of the universe is God's temple. And, and the beginning, the story in Genesis is of how God's temple was built. And so the original audience, the understanding that the story in Genesis is about the building of a temple, God's temple, they would have been very familiar with what happens next once the work was completed. Once you finish building a temple, you go into the temple and you rest. And God goes in and rests. The temple is built to be a place of divine or solemn rest. It's a place to take a holy Sabbath. But a divine rest... It wasn't the same thing as, you know, God signing off or switching off or something. He, God wasn't tired after he'd done all that creating. He didn't have to take a nap. Now that the cosmic temple for God had been created, he could enter into it and get into the business of running the cosmos. See, we don't worship a distant God who, who set the world spinning and then just walked away. We worship a God who is in his temple doing the divine work of running the world. You see this, now that the temple has been created, the work of worship begins. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, the original readers of the Genesis story about the creation of God's temple and the ones listening to God's command to, to take a solemn rest, they would have understood that a call to keep the Sabbath holy is not a call to disengage or to disconnect. It's a, a solemn rest is what happens when, when crises have been resolved, when obstacles have been resumed, uh, removed, and a, a, a rhythm has been established. You see, a divine, solemn, holy rest is not about ignoring my responsibilities. It's about engaging what God's intended without obstacles. It's about entering into a time of worship, which is our holy work. In, in today's context, the hustle and bustle of life, getting your laundry done, getting your bills paid, getting your groceries bought. These things are the distractions that we must overcome, the obstacles that we must remove so that we can enter into a divine and solemn rest. Everything doesn't stop, but, but life is resolved so that the normal routine of worship can be undertaken. So, so keeping the Sabbath holy Entering into a time of solemn rest is it, not me thinking that, okay, Sunday I can take care of my honey-do this list or, or take care of my homework or, or whatever it is that I want to do on a Sunday afternoon, like watch a football game. Keeping, not that you can, but keeping the Sabbath holy is me understanding that this is the day that I am called to set aside so that I might do what God designed me to do. That on this day, I might glorify and worship, be tested or trained to see God fully, which leads me to my last kind of awkward point, and one of the reasons I really struggle today is not only is it a command for us to keep the Sabbath holy, not only is a solemn rest not the same thing as taking a nap or a break, a divine rest 
is something we intentionally work towards all week long so that we can keep the Sabbath holy. This day is not supposed to be like any other day. You see, the six days prior that leads up to today, they're to be used to prepare us for this day. You think about it, while they were in Egypt, the Israelites probably didn't get a weekend from Pharaoh. They were probably expected to work seven days a week. So the tradition of setting aside a day where the people of Israel could just do one thing, worship God, not work, worship God, this is something that the ancient world probably couldn't fathom very well. And it was something that set the Israelites apart from the rest of the world. This act of solemn rest, it was a gift from God that set the Israelites apart to make them a holy nation, different from everyone else. Um, my wife and I, we moved here from San Francisco two years ago. While we lived in San Francisco, we were pretty actively engaged in our church there. Um, I served there as an elder, as an executive pastor. Suzette was involved in a number of different ministries, women's ministry, the African ministry, social justice ministries. We had a church of a, about a little over 1,000 people who were regularly attending. We had multiple services through the morning uh, and, and because we had made a commitment to keep that day for God, we were typically there the entire time. We would go to the multiple services because that was our community and we wanted to connect with folks. We attended the multiple services. We actively engaged in ministry and meetings and outreach events in the afternoon. We even opened our home up in the evenings for different events and for dinners. It was for the sake of the congregation to keep that day holy. And this, for us, Sunday was not the weekend. This was a day that we had set apart for the sake of Christ, for the work of Christ. I'm not saying that we weren't engaged in the work of Christ during the week as well, but we, we used the rest of the week to allow us to focus wholly on a day of solemn rest with our King where we might be able to fully and joyfully worship God. Here's a crazy thought for those who serve in ministry. I read a blog post recently. I can't remember who, which pastor it was. Uh, but he was speaking to why he didn't take Mondays off like most other pastors seem to. And, and the question was asked, why, why aren't you taking a Sabbath? And his response was, Sunday's my Sabbath. You see, this pastor understood the intent of the question, and he, and he moved to correct it. He, he takes a day off, but he, he, under, he wanted to explain Sabbath for him, Sunday. That was a different thing taking care of all his other responsibilities, including sermon prep, all this stuff, during the week allowed him the opportunity to enter into a solemn, divine rest with the rest of his congregation on Sunday. Preaching was his act of worship that allowed him to enter into a solemn rest. God provides the Israelites with manna every single day with a double portion on the sixth day, so that they might focus on a day of divine rest, a day of glorious worship on the seventh, so that they might enter into the temple of God and rest in his presence, that they might receive a divine shalom or peace and begin preparing the next day to do it again for the next Sabbath to be made holy. I'm going to ask the band to start coming on up as we prepare to close out, you know, we're, we're, called to, we're commanded to keep the Sabbath holy. We're ordered to enter into a time 
of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath. A solemn rest is not about me taking a break or playing catch up on those things today that didn't get to before, but it's about God being glorified. And it is something that I am called to work towards during the week so I can set this day aside. I know I'm not saying that this work that I'm talking about is, it is not a means of salvation. My preparation during the week isn't going to, to replace the redemptive work of Christ that he has already done. One day, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the chosen children of God are going to reside with him in heaven. The upside down kingdom that is being established right now by our resurrected king. But the work that we engage in, the efforts that we exert so that we can give God a day of solemn rest, of holy worship, this is a response to God's gift to us. And the Sabbath that God commands us to keep is yet another gift from God to rejuvenate us so that we might be trained up to understand that God's got this. So my question to you before we enter into a time of communion, my question to you is this. Are you entering into this holy Sabbath in a time of solemn rest, fully ready to get to the work of worshiping God? Or is this day just like any other? Is today a holy day set aside for God or is it just like any other day?